Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I know what I'm up against. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 34 is where we find ourselves as we're continuing our journey through this first book in the Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're really glad that you're here. You, you've picked a bit of a doozy of a Sunday to join us because not only is it time change and you're probably a little sleepier than usual, the, the chapter that we're dealing with today is a sordid and dark scene. And this is another example or illustration of why we just preach through the Bible because I would not wake up on a beautiful spring morning and say, you know what, I think I want to talk about rape, uh, deceitful revenge, using circumcision as a means to disable your enemy, and a murderous plot. It's just not what I get up in the morning thinking about. But there is, this is all of God's Word, and there is much for us to mine as we look at this chapter. So we need to get right into it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this text, and then we're going to work our way back through. And after we work our way through this text, we're going to settle on three points of application or takeaways that I think that we should apply to our hearts. Before I read and pray... Let me just mention that if you, uh, I've just been praying this week for women that maybe have been sinned against in the way that is mentioned in this chapter, and uh, I want you to know that I have been praying for you and your heart this week, that as we work through this text and as we hear what the Holy Spirit would say to his people, that God would guard your heart and that God would continue to heal your heart and your wounds, and that you would see that what lies ahead is far, far better than anything that we leave behind. So let me, let me read Genesis 34. Before, before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, we come to your Bible knowing that it is all your word and that it is good for us. It's profitable for fashioning our soul into Christ-likeness. I pray, Lord, for believers in this room that they would be encouraged, that we would be convicted, and that we would be strengthened, and that we would look to Christ, who is our only hope. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, that by your kind and gracious will, you would give them a new heart so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus and believe. And we pray all these things. In your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, chapter 34. Now remember this journey of Jacob, who is this chosen son of Isaac, who was the chosen son of Abraham. God is building a people. He's building a nation through this promised family, through this promised seed. And we see that despite the wickedness and rebellion and frailty of God's people, God's purposes will not be thwarted. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because they had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate in his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. 
The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Oh, this is God's holy word. Well, what are we to make of this chapter? We're going to work our way back through this text by looking at just four words. These four words are not the most cheerful words in the world, but I think they outline the, the flow of thought in this passage. They're defilement, passivity, deceit, and revenge. And after we look at these four segments of this chapter, then we'll settle down on four or three takeaways. First, we see in the first four verses the defilement of Dinah. She was defiled. She was really raped. The Bible doesn't use that word, but we see there in verse 2 that Shechem, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. Shechem raped Dinah. But before that, we see that Dinah, in verse 1, it's, it's an important, it's a small sliver, but it's important for us to consider. We see that Dinah went out to the women of the land. Now, what's going on here is that Jacob, remember, we're just on the heels of Will's message last week where Jacob has reconciled with his brother Esau. He, he left his father-in-law Laban with his wives. He then fled and reconciled with his brother Esau. And he's still not where he has promised God that he would go back to this, this place Bethel. And he, instead of going to where he should have gone, is settled in this land. He's settled in this city Shechem, which is also the name of this son of Hamar, and he is in this place, not quite where he should be, living amongst this pagan Canaanite culture. And he's, he's really making his family vulnerable by living amongst these people that he shouldn't be amongst at this point. And we see Dinah there at the end of verse 1 being intrigued by something in the culture. And there's that one little phrase there that's very telling. It says that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. Now, I want to be very, very clear here. I am not saying in any way that Dinah was asking for what happened to her or that she deserved this or that she is in any way culpable. We're going to get to Shechem here in just a second and we're going to take our shots. But there was something in the culture of the Canaanites that the writer seems to intend that drew her away from the safety and protection of her family's care and put her in a vulnerable situation. And before that, we know that what led to all of this, and we're going to get to Jacob in a moment, what led to all this is Jacob's hedging and disobedience and not 
coming through and being good on his vow to God to get back to the place that he was supposed to be, which is Bethel, which we'll see in chapter 35. So we see a man not leading his family well, and we see, as a result, his daughter being vulnerable. And then we see Shechem's lust and selfishness. Just look at the words of verse 2. It says that he seized her. He saw her. He laid with her and he humiliated her. Shechem clearly is a, is a young man of privilege. Maybe he was a young man of privilege that was never told no. A huge sign of maturity is whether or not a young man can delay gratification. And we see clearly here that Shechem can't. He's the type of young man who just sees what he wants and he grabs it. You know, he's just, this is mine, I want it. We almost get the sense there in verse 4 where he says to his father, just kind of feels sort of like self-absorbed and selfish. It's like he's, it's like he's a Roman emperor clapping for a new plate of flu, food. You know, get me this girl for my wife, snapping his fingers. We see the lusts of this young man run amok. Get me what I want now. He doesn't even use her name. He just calls her this girl. Get her for me. I want her now. It's all about me and my needs. And we see lust and self-absorption unchecked. We see this in this sad scene. We see this illuminating the wickedness of the objectification of women. And if it was bad in that day, it is just as bad, if not more, in our day. The objectification of women. He doesn't even call her by her name. He's clapping his hands. This is what I want. And his lust overtakes him. And his lust is selfish. It demands. It denigrates. It destroys now, let's not write ourselves out of the story too quickly if we've never done anything so physical and violent as Shechem. I think in the heart of every man, there is this lust and selfishness that must be resisted and fought. This seed that's in Shechem, to some degree, is in every man. Every man that clicks on a pornographic image we're just saying, I want this now. I want that object for me alone. For every young man who calls himself a Christian and leads his girlfriend or his fiance before he has vowed to serve her in Christ to take off her clothes or for him to put his hands all over her body is really being, in a sense, like a little mini Shechem. I want you for myself. Now, I, listen, we know the lines. I've said some of them myself. Oh, baby, I love you. But at the core, it is selfishness. It is the objectification of women. A word to women who have been sinned against in this way. In fact, I think to some degree, every woman in our culture, because we are, we are 
We are, it is the air we breathe. The object. Just look at billboards. Look at any commercial on TV. Look at any time anybody wants to promote anything, whether it is a car or a Kleenex. We are swimming in water where the way you sell stuff is to put the form of a woman on a TV screen to lure the eyes of men who grow up in a culture where women are objectified and lust runs amok. And a word to women who grow up in this culture. I think every woman, whether you have been the victim of some heinous, evil crime like we see here in this chapter, or whether it's just emotional or social, somewhere along that spectrum, all women have been touched by this wickedness of our culture that objectifies women. I want to say to you, dear sister, especially those that maybe have been in a physical way acted against in such a sinful way, that Romans 8.18 says, and I just want to draw your heart to this beautiful truth as you wrestle with the suffering and the pain of that. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And I want to say to you, dear sister, that you, regardless of what advertisers will say, regardless of what some young man will say, regardless of what our culture says, you are not something just to be looked at and lusted after. Do not let your worth be determined by self-absorbed men who have grown up in a self-absorbed culture that defines beauty in vain and fleeting ways. Don't let your heart be dragged into that. Dear sister, you are way, way more valuable than that. And demand that the man who is pursuing your heart has that high view of femininity. And do not give in to anything less. And do not let your worth as a woman be judged merely by your appearance as the world would judge it. Proverbs 31.30 says that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And men in this culture, in this church, let us fight. Let us wrestle with our own souls and against this darkness that we just live in. Let us fight to create a culture where women are not objectified, but where they are prized for their beauty in Christ, the hidden things of the heart, and not the mere fleeting temporal things of the exterior. And let us be men who do not objectify women who keep our hands and our eyes to ourself and reserve all of our energy for the one that God has given us in marriage and only after we have committed our heart and covenant to them in marriage. Now, it's easy for me to say, you may get this interpretation that, oh, oh, oh gosh, there's this, this holy guy talking to me. I feel guilt. But guess what? This just sin. If you have passed puberty, you have sinned sexually. So I am a guilty, redeemed sinner speaking to guilty 
sinners who need, either need to be redeemed or are redeemed. We are all fallen in this area. We are all fallen in this area. Man, I'm not, I'm not beating you up for anything that I have not given into myself over the years, but there is hope in Christ. And here's the deal. There is more joy in living the way that the Bible calls us sexually. There's far more joy in that than the counterfeit joys that this world will, will lie to us with. So we see the defilement of Dinah. Then we see the passivity of Dad. The passivity of Jacob. Look at verse 5 again. It says that when Jacob heard about the defilement or the rape of his daughter Dinah, his sons were out in the field and he held his peace. Dad, I mean, come on. It It just seems counterintuitive here. And then the sons came in and they were very angry. And then the rest of the chapter, we see the brothers, Jacob's sons, taking over the negotiations or the dispute with Hamar and Shechem. And Jacob is conspicuously silent. In fact, we don't hear from Jacob again until the end of the chapter where he seems to be more concerned about what's going to happen to him as a result of this than he is about protecting his daughter's heart. Jacob is remarkably passive here. Now, I did some reading on this chapter. I love to read the old dead guys. And I read where... None other than Martin Luther and John Calvin, the two giants of the Protestant Reformation, spoke actually favorably about Jacob's actions here in this chapter, and they held him up as an example of restraint. So I marked in my notes, March 8th, 2015, the day I disagreed with Martin Luther and John Calvin. (laughs) The two giants of the Protestant Reformation. Someday I'll see him in heaven. I'm going to say, Marty, Johnny boy. <laughs> Genesis 34, man. I, 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 don't, I don't think you had that one right. <laughs> Jacob. I, I, I think the greatest issue in our world today is the selfishness and passivity of men. We see it in the garden. We see it in Genesis 3. We see Eve being deceived by the serpent and taking a bite of the forbidden fruit. And it's not like Adam is miles away tackling buffalo and skinning them, being courageous and, you know, valiant. He's right next to her. He, she, he, you take a bite, Adam. So what led to Eve's sin was Adam's passivity. And we see Jacob here passive. Oh, that God would create in me as a man and us as a men a, a Christ-like Humble, fierce, courageous, initiative-taking, protective, strong, other-centered selflessness to defend 
my wife and my children and the people that I love from an evil culture. Friends, that is not neutral, right? Things aren't like, this is not a Norman Rockwell painting out there, right? This isn't, the world is not a Louis Armstrong song, right? It is a wicked world where Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the enemy, our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion seeking, like a lion seeking those whom he may destroy. And the world doesn't meet, need wimpy men who are wondering whether or not they're up to the task or whether or not you know, they should assert themselves. It needs men who are courageous, who care, who are vigilant, who know what's coming into their house, who know where their children are, who know what their children are being influenced by, who know what their children are reading and seeing and looking at on the internet and is on their phones, who, who know these things and who are guarding the hearts of the people around them because men are not called to slink back into passivity, but to stand up and defend, and oh, that God would give us a culture where men can find a gracious place to learn that skill because it doesn't come naturally. Oh, that the younger men would grab the, the older men would grab the younger men and say, come along with me, young man. This is how you get outside of yourself, how you put down the video game control, how you stop watching sports incessantly, how you stop giving yourself away to recreation and just all these frivolous hobbies that will destroy your soul and bleed you away from your mission and give yourself to engaging yourself to what matters most the hearts of the people that you have been given to lead and to shepherd. Oh, that we would have that type of culture. I think we do. We need more of it. Let's do it, man. Let's not be passive. And then we see in the next section this just wicked, deceitful scene in verses 13 through 24. We see the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, we learn, are the ones that take the lead on this later deceitfully using the sign of the covenant, circumcision, that God enacted to, uh, to, to mark off his people, they used this beautiful symbol of what it means to be God's people, to mark them off as merely a strategic ploy to incapacitate their enemy so that they could then kill them when they're down and out, recovering from surgery. And we see that Simeon and Levi aren't the only deceitful ones. We see Hamar and Shechem say, after they hear this negotiation between Jacob's son and them, they say, okay, yeah, let's be one people. And then they go to their people and they say, okay, here's the deal, boys. If we do this, I know it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough here. But if we do this then we will get all of their land. And look how much stuff we'll have. I mean, there seems to be no remorse for what Shechem has done to Dinah. There's no repentance. There's, there's just murderous revenge, misusing this sign that God has given to mark off his people, complete misunderstanding of what it means to be God's people by the sons of Jacob, and this selfish desire for more stuff from these pagan Canaanites. Hamar and Shechem, and we see deceit. 
And in some ways, I guess I can understand and sympathize with the brothers. I mean, their sister's been defiled, and in essence, she's been kidnapped, and they want to do something about it. As I was just trying to think, is there anybody good? Is there any redeeming qualities in anybody in this, uh, this, this story of any of these men? Well, I, I wanted to like Simeon and Levi, but they just went overboard. They, they had a treacherous plan. It's not that they defended her, but it's how they defended her that was wrong. They used this sign as a trick. It's a complete misuse of this immensely important sign. I, I try to think of an illustration. It'd be like maybe us saying to somebody that we didn't like, hey, come, come and, you know, let me baptize you and then just hold them down under the water, you know, until they drown. But let's step back and notice just how wicked this scene is. Notice that God is not mentioned really in this chapter at all. Friends, I think this chapter just shows us. It's just like a little picture, a little object lesson of the wickedness of sin and its effect on humanity from Genesis 3 onward. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin has come into the world through one man, that's Adam, and, through, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul then sort of, he, he teases out that, that concept of what sin has done. He further elaborates on it and he says, this is the result of sin entering into humanity. He says that you are... All of us, he's speaking to the Ephesians here in this case, but I think this, certainly this applies to all people before Christ rescues them. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." We see in this chapter that Jacob and his sons were not influencing the world around them as they were called to, but we see the world around them influencing Jacob and his sons. And we see a despicable scene of deceit. And then finally, the last section there, verses 25 through 31, we see this murderous revenge, waiting until they were sore after this rather delicate surgery, Simeon and Levi seize on the opportunity and don't just go after Shechem, which maybe if they would have just done that, we could have stopped and said, well, you know, a little rough around the edges. I'm not so sure about using circumcision, but yeah, I mean, well, okay, okay, Simeon and Levi, we can kind of see why you did that. They killed every male in the city. And then Jacob's other brothers, or Jacob's other sons, came and plundered and looted the whole place. Simeon and Levi compound the situation, avenge the rape of their sister with mass murder. And then we see Jacob, the chosen son of Isaac, the grandson of the chosen one, Abraham, still seeming not to get it. At the end of chapter 34, in this despicable scene, what is Jacob's concern? Verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. 
the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. No mention of Dinah. How's she doing? Nothing. Me, me, me. This is a wicked chapter of self-absorbed men. We see Shechem taking what's not his. We see Simeon and Levi completely blowing it and overreacting and be selfish. Their anger really isn't about the righteousness of God. It's about their own reputation. And then we see Jacob scared for his own safety and not concerned about the one that he is called to protect. (sighs) Happy Sunday to you, brothers and sisters. (laughs) So what are three takeaways? First, men and women, lust must be resisted or it will destroy. Shechem just had to have the object of his lust. Get me this girl. And listen, it's not just sexual lust. Let's not let ourselves off the hook and say, oh, Brad, this isn't my problem. Get me whatever. These lusts that are in our heart, if they are not resisted and fought with the power of the gospel, with the reality that Jesus has bore our sin and removed it, and he has given us his righteousness. Friends, that's the gospel, okay? That's the gospel, that we are, we are, we are stuck before Christ in a cycle of Genesis 34. Yeah, maybe we haven't done anything as violent as rape or murder, but we are stuck in the cycle of self-absorption that we see in Genesis 34. And the reality and truth of the gospel, the message of the Bible, the message of the scriptures is that Jesus then comes and becomes a man, God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life. He's touched. He is. He faces Every temptation, every lust, he, he resists it to the end. He endures it all perfectly. Where we, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, have all fallen. We've all given in. We've all become self-absorbed. Jesus resists it all in the flesh, not just as fully God, but also as fully man. Tempted is always as we are yet without sin, become like us in every way, so that he could understand and be merciful in his life on this earth for us. And he resists it, and he lives a perfect life. And because he's a perfect man and the fully eternal Holy God, He can satisfy the wrath of the Father for the sin of all those that would turn and trust in Him. And Jesus lays down His life on the cross, bears God's wrath, rises in victory, in conquering sin and death and all of its consequences, and now hasn't just forgiven us for our sins and taken away God's wrath, but the Bible says that He has given us His righteousness He's given us his Holy Spirit that now lives in us. He's given us his words whereby we can fight and resist. We are not left to ourselves. To try harder is the hope of the gospel. 
But we now have Christ in us, young man, who when you are sitting down in the front, in the, in the, in, on your chair in front of that computer screen, he is with you to resist that counterfeit pleasure. And you are called to do that. And you can do that if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, your only hope is to run to the one who has and defeated it for you. And let's not just focus on, you know, boys and girls, you shouldn't do this. Friends, resisting this together in community by the power of the gospel will lead to our greater joy. It will lead to our greater joy. Takeaway number two. Men must take the initiative to lead and protect. Now, we've, we've talked about this already, I think, sufficiently. The world is fallen and broken. Brothers, may we not fall into and be lulled asleep by the cultural trap that says that if my kid is getting good grades and involved in sports or some extracurricular activity and, you know, doesn't have his pants around his knees and hanging out at the mall or, you know, whatever, then I guess he's okay. I've done a pretty good job. No. There's a, a fallen world out there. There's an enemy that wants to destroy our wives, our children, our church. And God calls men to stand against that and to protect and to lead and to take the initiative. And again, that, that men, that's the pathway to joy. It's the pathway to joy. Men, this is not easy but it's not complicated. And we can do this together. We can be the type of men that stand up, that lead well, and that protect our family and those that God has given us to care for against a broken and fallen world. And then the final and third takeaway. Only the cross of Christ brings perfect justice. Spurgeon famously said that every, he said, just as every road in England leads to London, likewise, every text of Scripture ultimately leads to Christ. And so I started to think, okay, where is the gospel? Where do we see? Where's the road to the gospel in Genesis chapter 34, this, this horrible scene of rape, misuse of what it means to be God's people as a plot for murderous revenge and complete male passivity. Where, where, where is Christ in this? Where, where can we get to the cross in this? I think Genesis 34 is in the Bible to give us a picture of the despairing of our own devices. Like we cannot do it on our own. We can never fully and finally bring justice in our world. Now, this is not to say that there is not a way that we should go about pursuing temporary justice. So if you're in the military 
and you are a young man that gets deployed to the Middle East, and you have to look down the barrel of a gun and pull the trigger to kill an evil and wicked person, you scripturally and righteously can and should do that. Today, go and read Romans chapter 13, where it says that God even raises up unrighteous pagan governments to be his sword to execute justice on evil men. And so even though our country is not perfect, perfect, and even though the motivations of our politicians are not perfect, neither was the Roman government back in the time when Paul wrote Romans. And Paul says that God raises up Rome, or he raises up places, countries like the United States, to quell evil and to be the sword that brings God's justice on evil people. So if you're in the military, what you are doing is right and good and just, but it's temporary. If you're, in the, in, if you're a policeman and you spend your nights policing and keeping our city safe, what you are doing is good and right. If you're a judge and you have to hear about human wickedness day after day and you dole out sentences and punishments, which are very difficult to do, you, what you are doing is good and right. Praise God for men and women like you. But ultimately, what, what we are doing is temporary in our justice. Ultimately, our attempts at justice can never fully make things right. In fact, yesterday I watched President Obama's speech, the 50-year anniversary of the horrible event in the march in Selma, 50 years ago. And we're still not getting that right. Like, that's still a huge issue in our country. We're, we're still wrestling over civil rights and justice. And okay, the laws have maybe changed, but the, but the hearts haven't fully changed. Friends, we cannot fully and finally bring justice and the dark bitter cloud of Genesis 34 is in the Bible, I think in large part, to cause us to lift our heads above this horizontal effort and plane so that we will see that our only hope is Christ. Friends, the road to the gospel of Genesis 34 is a road that God paves from heaven down. He comes to us. He doesn't say to us, you guys have about Two or three hundred more years or a couple thousand years to figure it out until I come down there. No, he comes to us in despair, in brokenness, in lust, in objectification of women, in passivity. Jesus comes to us. He comes to us and he paves a road to our hearts and he lays down his life so that all those that will look up and trust in him and not in themselves can be made right and can finally and fully be justified. Because here's first, the the greater need is not just that justice would be enacted out there, but that God's justice and punishment that should be barreling down on my heart would be satisfied. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. And I conclude with this. He says, verse 18, this really beautiful and important chapter of Romans 7 where Paul is, I think, being very honest about his continuing wrestle with sin even after he has become a Christian which is incredibly encouraging to me to hear the apostle talk about how the call of the Christian 
is to wrestle and to take God's side against sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In other words, I'm, I've always got Genesis 34 just kind of hanging over me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In and of myself, it's just I don't have the ability. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, I just, I can't, I can't do it on my own, is what Paul is saying. I can't do it. So what's his only conclusion? What's his only hope? And it's verse 24, which is the gospel. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will bring us out of the muck and mire of Genesis 34? Who will make me the man that I'm called to be, but I can't be in and of myself? Who will give me a heart to desire a greater joy rather than the counterfeit joy of objectifying this world around me? Who can do it? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the only one where justice is perfectly satisfied and where we can be lifted out of this mud. Let's pray. Father, I pray for Christians in this room that you would help us see ourselves in Genesis 34. that we would afresh be reminded that we don't just need grace for the beginning of the Christian life, we need it for all of the Christian life. We are completely dependent on you. Lord, we need you. Oh, how we need you. We need you to strengthen our hearts to set our eyes on true joy and not counterfeit joy. We need to say no to our lusts. We need to say no to laziness and passivity and fear. And we need to be men and fathers that lead well. And we need to be reminded that the way we do that is not by grinding it out on our own effort, but by looking afresh to the hope of the strength of Christ who is ours, who is in us, whom we are hidden in. And then, Lord, for my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Christ, Lord, would you, God, would you let them see themselves in Genesis 34 as well? And would they get finally, maybe for the first time, 
to the point where they finally despair of themselves and turn away from their own self and turn and look and finally see Christ who is the only one that can deliver them from this body of death. And Lord, I pray that you would do all of this for your glory and our joy. And I pray that any person in this room who's looking to you now for the first time would realize that they don't need to do anything or utter any magic prayer. The only fitness you require, as the song says, is that we feel our need of you and run to you and look to you. So friend, if that is you right now, turn from yourself, put your hope in Christ, look to him, put your hope in him, tell him that your hope is in him and that you are turning from your sins. Ask him to forgive you and put your hope in Jesus even now. And before you leave this room, if you're doing that right now, before you leave this room, talk to a person that you know to be a Christian or write down on the connection card your name and say, I would want to talk to a pastor or somebody about turning from my sin and trusting in Christ for the first time today. And we will sit down with you and encourage you in your faith in Jesus. Do that before you leave this room today. And the rest of us, as we worship and respond, If you're a Christian, you are welcome to come to the communion table and to remember what Jesus has done and to worship and adore him.